0: Welcome, everyone, to Goddard in the World podcast, uh, which is a project of Goddard Alumni Council, where we highlight Goddard alumni accomplishments out in the world. I am one of your co-hosts, Amanda Fay Laxon, here uh, with my other co-host and today's guest, Casey Corona. Hey, Casey. Hi, Amanda. How are you? Good. How are you? Doing well. Cool. So because, because you're one of our co-hosts and people hear you all the time like, and, and we hear each other all the time, um, I wanted to do this intro a little bit differently. Um, I am very curious. The first thing that popped into my head was your experience in Australia. Was it Australia that you yeah, were in? Yeah. I'm sure. I, I think we talk at length about it, but um, I'm curious how your travel to other countries has impacted your ideas on progressive education, on education and how how it could work.
1: Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Amanda. Um, I guess I was sparked at 20 years old and it really came through my uh, youth group organization and wanting to sort of travel outside of my traditional home of the Pacific Northwest. And so I got down there and I found whether it was through preaching efforts or just interacting and meeting with people, um, in Australia and doing some volunteer work outside of traditional schooling environments, I got a bug around sort of education and how learning could exist in all kinds of formats and has existed in all kinds of ways uh, since humans began So um, and become. And so because of that, I wasn't constrained in any sort of way around learning. And I definitely knew that when I came back from Australia, that I wanted to make sure I expanded my learning outside of traditional schooling realms. And I wanted to be liberal arts and I want to look at education, but I didn't know fully about all of that. But, you know, it's one of those things where, I think everyone knows intuitively that they're learning, but they don't necessarily think consciously all the time that they're learning. But that's how our brains are working, um, you know, conti- you know, continually. And so, yeah, I, I, I shaped through that. And then meeting my uh, partner, uh, in Canada really shaped my understanding. You know, when you talk about, um, just differences in language and, you know, funny little like, uh, uh, stories, what things mean here or there. I experienced that a lot in Australia. I have some pretty funny anecdotes around <laughs> sort of <laughs> what you think something means and what it actually yeah. means. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what- what
0: you- yeah, please give us an example. Yeah,
1: let me give you one. This is a little, uh, <clears throat> a little uh, interesting. But um, so <laughs> you know, I'm I'm sitting there, um, you know, it uh, watching an Australian uh, uh, Australian footballs match uh, in Sydney, and uh, my yeah. my friends from church had taken me there, and you know, I kept saying the word. Rooting, you know, who you're rooting for, who you're rooting oh, yeah, with, sure. you know, that kind of thing, right? I mean, in the sports world, that sort of makes complete sense in North yeah. America, sort of thinking, you know, that's who you're cheering for. Well, <laughs> it, <laughs> down, down under. Uh, that's a lot different <laughs> um, uh, meaning. The word "rooting" actually means uh, sexual intercourse. So when you're oh, rooting, yeah, that's you know. So when I'm who you're rooting with, um, really means something very different when you're in the context. Wow. of, Yeah. So I was uh, sitting there with my buddies, and they were asking me who you know, uh, you know, this and that, telling me about the rules, and I was just like, oh, you know. So which team are you rooting with? Who is your favorite player rooting with? And and they just found that to be quite funny, especially after a couple of big. Aussie beers down there. Right. It's quite fun. <laughs> yeah. it it's good times.
0: Yeah, that's hilarious. Do they consider that to be a rude question, or they just like went along with it?
1: <laughs> no, I mean l- learning in Australia. You know, in individual Australia, there's this. Um, There's this resistance to that traditional colonial kind of um, uh, full English like properness Mm. in Australia. So even though they have the habits of that, um, there's definitely this more undertone of just kind of being uh, very authentic and a little more rough i would say you know a little blue collar ish if you would say that in some mm. terms so no they found that hilarious there was nothing rude about that it was very appropriate and funny you know so uh that was a that was a great story um of having to do that one other one real quick i'll just expand this a little bit yeah I was with my very conservative um Christian group down there and <laughs> you know back in the 90s early 90s how you had the fanny packs that were really in and then a couple of years sure? ago they came yeah. back right yeah um well we're walking down the middle in um Melbourne of this sort of like you know in Australia they have these wide like open air kind of shopping areas where you like are in a main street, but it's kind of open and you're Mm -hmm. walking through the main street. It's not like undercover or inside of a building. It's open and shops on the left and the right. And, um, I, these, these, uh, conservative, um, friends of mine on my church, they were walking ahead of me in their skirts and their, you know, their, 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 blouses, uh, these, Mm -hmm. these females. And, um, they're walking ahead of me in pairs, and um, I'm a very loud person sometimes without even thinking about it, especially <laughs> in my early years of the 20s. Yeah. And I saw these fanny packs um, on the side. They were being sold. And um, I just said, uh, you know, to someone that was walking next to me, and, and they could hear me. They're about 10 feet ahead of me. And they said, Hey, I said, I picked up the fanny pack. I said, Hey, check out these fannies. You know, check out these fannies. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, that's that's known as vagina down uh-huh. in Australia um, mm-hmm. so they whipped their head around pretty quickly at me and gave me a death stare. <laughs> um, that was certainly not something I was used to so when we think about language and ideas and learning and that kind of thing I was definitely doing that when I was down under and of course I had more significant elements learning about aboriginal uh, communities and and, and first First Nation peoples and that kind of thing. But um, it was definitely um, a wonderful experience to sort of, uh, you know, experience that. And, you know, we're planning a trip to Ireland coming up, uh, Mm, me and my family in a couple of years. And so um, that's been a great learning experience as well. So I I think, you know, experience and culture and learning is always really significant. When I was working at uh, St. Martin's University, I helped develop um, the first study abroad scholarship Fourth in the country, um, very few at the graduate level, you know. But it's the idea. It's the idea of like, why would we stop studying abroad after undergrad? You know, if you're in a graduate program, if you're in a doctorate program or masters. Uh, you can still continue to learn and experience studying abroad. That shouldn't <laughs> be something that's only limited to the undergraduate students. So I am um, really, I was really shocked there were only four of those in the, in, in the whole entire United States. And so that was something I, I thought was a really good thing to pursue and, and should be considered because there's not much better than learning um, that can happen from people who are different than you and have different experiences and breadth and life. And so uh, that's, that's, that's what I think, especially um, democratic and experiential learning outside of the traditional walls. So, yeah.
0: absolutely. Yeah, I mean my my undergrad um I studied abroad for about a year. Uh it was it, I did three different programs in Europe mm. and I would never trade it for anything. I mean, right. I definitely learned more in that like 8 months or whatever it was than than I would have at home, um, and and I agree with you that learn, learning can and does happen everywhere, and it's just one hundred percent worth it. Of course, I miss like traveling now, <laughs> like, but we are we are turning a corner, so hopefully we'll all get to be in be in contact with each other and in different spaces very soon well that's the
1: great thing about you being in new york though right amanda you get to experience so many different people all the time which is just it must be such a learning experience every day you're out you know, amongst people when you can obviously outside of covid but
0: yeah yeah that's true but yeah. it's not no, no. it's nothing like yeah it's nothing like like being in a completely different country uh, right. for sure yeah. so yeah thank you for uh those stories casey and everyone uh here is casey's interview Today our guest is the other host of Goddard in the World, Casey Garona. Hi, Casey.
1: Hi, Amanda. How are you?
0: Good, how are you?
1: I'm doing well.
0: Great. As we have talked about our goal for Goddard in the World podcast is to talk to Goddard alumni and see what brought them to Goddard and where they are now. So let's just go ahead and get started. Casey, what brought you to Goddard?
1: Thanks, Amanda. I'm so excited to uh, be on this podcast and to share my journey. Um, What brought me to Goddard was really a desire to continue um, my uh, progressive and democratic education. I I studied at um, Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington, my hometown in my undergraduate years. I had taken a few years off, went to Australia. Um, I just kind of um, bounced around couches of friends from church and that kind of thing. And then I found um, working with some um, Aboriginal folks down in um, in uh, the outback in Australia, the idea of education is this kind of non-boundary, um, um, a boundaryless um, sort of uh, Uh, opportunity and idea. And so I started thinking about how learning occurs in that way. And so I went to a liberal arts college in in Olympia and that college inspired me to just open my mind to learn about education. And I graduated from there, uh, coinciding around the same time of the Great Recession (laughs) in 2009. So it was a pretty clear decision from a financial perspective um, and from an academic perspective that I was just getting started, and I wanted to continue to learn. Now, while I was at Evergreen, I was starting to become a secondary social studies teacher. I was very um, focused down on becoming a public school, Mm -hmm. secondary history and geography um, um, teacher. But as I dove more into that kind of licensure and certification elements and those kind of things um, and checking all those boxes, I found myself wanting to do the opposite in grad school, wanting to open up the idea and and grow and explore in a broader sense, um, education. And so it drew me to Goddard because it was a master's of arts in education and I could do it low residency. I could live in in the Northwest and travel to this beautiful, uh, village in central Vermont, (laughs) even in, um, uh, the dead of winter in January. And then also in the heat of summer in July. But, uh, I really felt a calling there. They had shown up, um, to my college and they were uh, promoting their West coast MFA, uh, program. And, uh, I'm like, do you have an education program? They're like, yeah, we do. And, and so I checked it out and, I had great communication from the admissions people at that point. They were just sending me letters, and cards, and emails, like literally in the mail, like every couple of days. I was like, wow, they really want me. I didn't I didn't have too much of concern getting into to a school like that because I know how um, open and accepting um, progressive schools are with their enrollment. Um, but uh, the personalization really, I think like you, Amanda, drew me to um, – Going to Goddard and and my gut told me it was time. So two weeks after I graduated from undergrad, I was on a plane heading to to Vermont. Wow.
0: that's amazing. Um, they they were very good at recruiting at the time. Very
1: good at the time. Yes, <laughs>
0: that's amazing. Um, you talked about a boundarylessness. Sound- <laughs> yes, <laughs> boundarylessness of education that you learned from aboriginals in Australia.
1: Can you talk a little more about that? Yeah. So I'm doing some preaching work in my community down there, my church community, and um, and just doing some goodwill work down there. Um, I just remember when I was down there um, traveling to some of the outskirts outside of um, New South Wales and um, in Northern Territory, and that kind of stuff, and working with um, with the idea of thinking about learning and education and spirituality and uh, aboriginal culture um, and learning from them and their um, history and their spiritual practices and recognizing and having this sort of aha moment. And it wouldn't be fully realized until actually my master's thesis. Um, mm-hmm. But in the back of my mind, the idea of, wait, learning can happen anywhere with anyone. And um, this idea of structured colonial um, schooling, um, even though I didn't even know what basically any of those words (laughs) meant at the time Uh coming out of high school. um, But there was a sense that, um, you know, outside the church, outside the public uh, schooling system, outside of uh, the private schooling system, or just how we sort of westernized um, schooling, that learning still occurs and it's part of who we are um, as human beings. And so, that kind of openness to that without putting those barriers and those walls and that boundary of like, okay, this is how we learn and this is the only structure of that learning was really um, eye opening to me. And so, when I came back um, to the States, I realized that I need a liberal arts education, I need somewhere where I'm free to learn not where I'm constrained, but where I'm open. Um, Evergreen, just like Goddard, had no grades, had evaluation process, It had um, three professors per um, each individual uh, study from different disciplines that integrated their learning, um, it had seminars and these different approaches to how we read and wrote and interacted and um, gave presentations. Um, and so there was all these really free thinking ideas around education that I was not only studying, but living simultaneously Mm -hmm. that matched a lot of um, my interactions in Australia with communities that um, had been oppressed and underrepresented and really isolated. Mm -hmm. And so all of that continued to form um, and became more and more clear as the further I went down my education road and journey um, in, in Goddard. I'm really, and as we'll discover over the, the podcast here, I'm really, uh, I'm really an anti-institutionalist. Mm-hmm. And so that can be conflicting at times, uh, living in an educational sector world and trying to make uh, money to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, but really I am, uh, I'm kind of an outsider that, that wants to push those limits and boundaries around, um, what, what we have to do inside to become more outside thinking in education
0: it's so interesting because i love the idea of that you can learn anywhere um it, because that feels very goddard <laughs> like, um it's like Absolutely. it's like goddard was the, this magical town waiting for you <laughs> like to to come and um explore um stuff like the what you what you said that with structural and like decolonization, and you didn't have words for that before, um, right? You know, at the time that you encountered it, uh, but but you thought about it later. Um, you said that your thesis, I was that your thesis at Goddard that kind of culminated in your understanding.
1: Yeah. So yeah. So. Even when I got to Goddard, I still have this residue, like wanting to be a secondary social studies teacher and, you know, push those kind of political um, limits and history limits and all these kind of things and, and and teach in the subject matter mindset. And then even as I got down further into Goddard and I, I kept going, what am I doing trying to um, cover all of these boxes and, and these kind of notes and lines? I can do this. Mm-hmm. But this is not part of who I am and not where I've been um sort of outgrowing that and so it came to a head where I had done basically all of the work on my licensure except for um, my student teaching, and I was trying to do my student teaching but doing in Washington, and it's very hard uh, with a Goddard format with low residency to obtain mm-hmm. licensure for the student teaching. It's just very, very challenging. Imagine most colleges or universities have um, student teaching licensure elements for one state, and right. Goddard tries to do that for 50 states. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really insane. It's really, really hard, and so as that kind of began to unravel a little bit. And there were some conversations at the college about that. I started to realize I don't really need to have that, um, certain certificate. And as I've actually come, even though I have my Goddard degree, I've even moved out of the mode of needing the actual Goddard degree. That's how far out uh, <laughs> I am, whether that even matters. It really, it really doesn't to me. Um, I'm glad I have it, but it's not something that I even um, care to think about as the importance of the journey in which I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I came to a point where I started talking to one of my faculty members. And I said, you know, I really need to think about um, exploring, you know, Goddard from a community education standpoint. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I developed a thesis on my last two semesters called Reconceptualizing the Prevailing Assumptions of the Status and Purpose of Community Education. And it was like this idea that community education was going to be a primary way in which I was going to explore that to its broadest sense. And so that's what I did. And and even writing and developing that, that um, it, it was amazing when I'm sitting at a cafe and I'm sitting there for six, seven hours a day, writing this thesis and reading all these books and mm-hmm. and doing all the back end work and you know all the all the writing of per, per chapters and all that. It was really amazing that what ended up occurring was I could see the learning happening in everybody around me sitting mm-hmm. at the cafe, which was just really um, absolutely incredible and and really eye opening. And by the end, I couldn't I could not not see <laughs> learning occurring everywhere. Which wow. is just, you know, um, you know, it's like I'm a big believer, even though John Dewey um, established sort of the traditional structure. And my favorite quote by him is, you know, education is not preparation for life. It's life itself, you know. Mm. And that's a really important quote because it's the idea that learning is always happening and always existing. It doesn't always need to be structured by an institutional uh, wall around it.
0: I love that. Um, I we we've talked about in other conversations that you and I have had, um, and, and other groups that we've been in, we've talked about, uh, coming at pretty much any situation from, from a place of humility. And I think humility is an important part of understanding that we're always learning. Mm.
1: <laughs> and,
0: um, I think, That's really interesting. That I I feel like I'm I'm sure I've heard that John Dewey quote, quote before, but I was not an education major, and so I would love to hear more about like break down for me the concept of community education versus other forms of education.
1: Yeah. So if we think about community education, we can think about it in in terms of you know, thousands and thousands of years. Right. I mean, we can go back into, um, how we developed sociologically and and tribal and how we learn. Um, that was not really, um, my entire focus, um, on my thesis. I, I was more looking at community education as through the establishment of Western and American, um, community education and how that sort of developed. Um, it's interesting because, um, John Dewey, you know, this white male, you know, sort of um, approach to that, you know, you have to reexamine that and sort of how we continue to grow and, and look at sort of those who are in power and those who aren't. But one of the ideas that drew me to that kind of community education, thinking about that was even though um, because of World War II, really, um, and post war communism, the, the, the structure of, um, or, or, you know, reaction to post-war communism, um, the structure of schooling became much more, um, much more formulaic in a lot of approaches in American society. But a lot of John Dewey's ideas around community education were night schooling, were, Ageless, right? So the idea that we can study at any age, um, the idea that you would be learning with individuals that are both, um, you know, 10 and 12 years old and individuals that are, you know, 60 or 70 years old. There's these uh, concepts and ideas around um, community learning that we... We either compartmentalize and put into segments, right? Oh, this is in my church, or this is in my book club, or this is in my school, or this is the PTA in my school, or this is the, you know, the, um, uh, you know, the sports, or this is the, the art community. And it's fine to have groups. I'm not saying that that's, that's a bad thing, but I think in a true community sense of, of education, we can't. We can't be adverse to thinking about how we view and value community education as a breakdown um, um, of those groups to expand uh, that learning. Because I think what ends up happening is we isolate and say, okay, this is my community for this group, for this purpose, for this learning. And that's okay. That's fine to recognize that. Um, But when you talk about humility and the idea of like being able to be humble in our learning and in our education, it really starts with a reflective purpose. Like that's to me, the way we get to sort of an understanding of group community learning and individual community learning is that we have to be able to um, be willing to be reflective Continually and it's exhausting, sure. but it's the only way to sort of break down and be reflected and to grow out of what we've already established as biases and sort of uh, preconceived notions and, um, and really not, um, pushing that boundary of that learning. Because if we're not, if we're not continually kind of pushing the edges of that, we're not growing, we're staying, um, stoic right we're staying just systematic and we're just staying within ourselves and that's really um the opposite of how community education can actually occur um uh fundamentally to grow um because otherwise there's limits and um as someone who believes in really breaking down the systematic structure of things like wait why do we have a time frame for learning Why are we doing this? Why are we here at 7.30 in the morning and out at 2.30 in a a school system, right? Um, Why uh, do we have grades? Why are we competing with fellow learners? Um, Why do we have uh, this sort of math separated? Like, why is this geometry here, but we're not integrating that with um, algebra or trigonometry? Mm -hmm. You know, why do we structure all of these things in this really formulaic, industrial model, um, sort of institutionalized... Uh, set that is really not ready or prepared for what is happening ahead. It's looking at education uh, collectively uh, from a backwards perspective, you know, the nostalgia perspective of that of, well, this is what I did. This is what my kids will do. It worked for me Mm -hmm. is really uh, not a, a progressive forward motion of how we need to be thinking about learning as a whole. So, we can talk about topics. We can talk about ideas, right? But we first also need to talk about how we structure even being able to talk about topics and ideas, and how do we press forward? And and that's really what I'm always looking to um, do. It's like this past year with COVID in 2020. Sure. Think about the think about the concept and idea. And I think I've talked to you about this before, Amanda. Um, schooling may not have been explicitly thought about in this way, but it certainly is evident. A large part of schooling Mm -hmm. exists as a babysitter program (laughs) for capitalist workers to contribute in society. And I'm not putting a judgment on that, but I am saying we need to think about that Mm -hmm. Um, and think about whether that. Is what we want the purpose to be of school, of, of learning, right? <laughs> of school, and, and whether, you know, and something like a pandemic exposes that reality to that and going, oh no, if this is really the purpose we're having and it's going to, you know, crush our economy, mm-hmm. maybe in the future we need to think about um, how that learning sort of occurs. It's not like, online or at home or virtual versus in person, Mm -hmm. that's the, that's the wrong, you know, left, right versus argument. The idea is to think about constructively and holistically, how are we, how are we thinking about learning for, Mm -hmm. for everybody and then for kids? And like, how are we thinking about the economy and how it relates to that? And, you know, that might be how we have set it up, but what's that based on? Mm -hmm. And then more importantly, where do we want to go?
0: Oh, I think we just got the, Title for your episode: Babysitter Program for-, <laughs> <laughs> for Capitalist Workers. Cool. Babysitter Program. that's a, that's that's incredible. And I was just thinking about that, you know, in relation to the pandemic, because you were talking about the systems and how they are working or not working, and how. Um, pardon my language, fucked up everything got when schools had to shut down, um, at, at every level, you know, from elementary to college. And, um, and then people questioning for NYU, for example, which is whatever, $65,000 a year for undergrad. I think if it's all virtual, If you are a theater major or dance major and you are learning your stuff via the internet, via video, is that, that tuition really worth it? (laughs) Is this what we're, what are we paying for? Same with Harvard, Yale, all of that. The other thing is I was talking to my sister the other day. My older sister has six kids. One is a college freshman and then the Two are in high school, one is in middle school, two are in elementary school. The younger ones, I think, started off the year in person um, Mm -hmm. and are still in person. The kids would have to, if if they opted for the virtual option, they would have to get dressed in their uniform and be in front of the computer all day. Now, because it was going to be simulcast, I guess, you know, with, with the kids in school. When the schools closed in the spring, they were given like 30 minute classes and then mm. they were done by like 11. <laughs> so I'm like, Are, is, the, is the education value? Now I get socialization, I totally understand that. But like when it's virtual, because for whatever reason, if a kid is sick, if the parents are sick, if they have to quarantine for some reason, you know, like all of that, or they don't want to get sick. Is the quality of the education the same <laughs> as, you know, when, it, when it's virtual? And I I know that's not really what you were discussing, but it's like, how much right. time does it take to learn?
1: Yeah. And I guess I would, you know, um, Continue to state, Amanda, and sort of highlight and bold and underline and italicize that, you know, we are still thinking about there are two ways to sort of approach sort of how that works so here's what's interesting and the conundrum about education and educational philosophy and those kind of things and places like goddard and and why they're both so amazing and then also very difficult to transfer most of the educational philosophers uh western philosophers um didn't do much um teaching (laughs) It's actually pretty rare. It's pretty rare to find them more in classroom for more than a year or two, which is pretty amazing because they're now experts in giving us uh, (laughs) the model and blueprints um, on how to better make an educational world, mostly because they got fed up with it and dropped out, which Mm -hmm. is very admirable and also not realistic in how we live the day-to-day life of the, the those in the learning space whether it's from a parent or a teacher or the educator so the construct of that and the the challenge is and the tension is how do we be brave enough to make systematic changes on a huge um, conscious basis around how learning it should occur. So when you say things like, well, how much time is actual learning occurring with these when they're only in, you know, two hour sessions Mm -hmm. to me, that's a great, um, that's a great sort of, um, smaller scale, right? That's a, that's a smaller element Mm -hmm. of a larger idea, Mm -hmm. which is the right way to think when you're living in it in the real world. Um, (laughs) an even worse way to think is we're not even thinking about that, right? We're just sort of figuring out they're here so that, you know, my parents can go back to work or whatever, you know, or the Mm -hmm. family care, but can go back to work or whatever. So there's that or the COVID obviously as Mm -hmm. taking over precedent, but, um, but then there's an even larger conversation to have around, okay, nibbling at the edges um, is not really making a seismic difference in, in how we structure and think about, Uh, what's best for society and learning and, and in creativity and innovation and whatever elements of part of society that we think should be valued. Right? So think about the initial concepts of public education, right? It's education for all it's democratization, right? It's the um, ability for everyone to have the opportunity to go to school and then think about the constraints, both from a financial standpoint, from a structured standpoint, that we immediately place on those that want to participate in that process, right? Mm -hmm. So let me give you an example. Um, In Puerto Rico, and and the city escapes me at the moment, but I went to a conference back in 2014 called the um, International Democratic Education Conference, and it travels every year. Um, And it was in Colorado, and I went to it. And um, basically, there was a huge contingent from Puerto Rico. And in Puerto Rico, which is part of the United States, but has certain um, flexibility in some of uh, its ability to be in education because it's not a state. Um, they have created a whole city in Puerto Rico around, and it's not a large city. I forgot how many people. I want to say something like uh, a couple thousand people um, around education. Okay. And when I say they've created the city, I literally mean Everything that exists in the city from the buildings to the open spaces to the nutrition to the um, sort of interplay sort of the tribal sense of people who take care of one another and the entire city is built on this concept or idea of Education first, like that's the value first and community education and uh, exploration of ideas and play and thought all the way from the elementary level through high school. And the entire town has made the conscious effort that that is what we're going to do in this town, in the city. We are going to make education as the heartbeat and the center of the city and other elements, other industry elements are not going to be the driver of that we're going to invest in the education as, as the center and what comes out of that comes out of that for Puerto Rico. But that's going to be our entire purpose of this town. And that's a very radical shift to move an entire city like that, you know, to be in that kind of way. But those are the kind of um, dramatic approaches to thinking about education. Those very large shifts to thinking about education that really break through
0: I think that's a really interesting intentional community, right? Like they, right. they created that. Um, do you know the name of that town, by the way?
1: Yeah. I, it escapes me at the moment. I, right. I was looking it up a second ago. Excuse me at the moment, but I'll, mm-hmm. I'll have to find uh, some research articles for that. But yeah. Um, but that was just one example of many. So, and I'm sure, you know, um, when we think of education and learning in other world communities, it can look different, um, especially um, in areas that aren't, aren't sort of Western focused, right? And so I think there's there's an appreciation of way we have to sort of expand mm-hmm. a perspective of learning that is, you know, because sometimes when we list and organize and think about education, we do so through a very precise lens, mm-hmm. right? So even comparing you know, states to each other and their systems sure. or even comparing the United States to the list of the greatest education countries mm-hmm. in the world, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Well, you're doing that through whatever the framework and the test results and whatever that kind of yeah. structure you've already kind of set up. And while you say, yeah, that gives you what we call um, uh, quantitative outcomes, yeah. right? Quantitative, those are hard measured values and things that we can sort of mark down and have financial purpose and reasonings to, to, to quanti- quantify. It doesn't give you qualitative mm-hmm. outcomes and learning is instinctual and learning is holistic and learning is human. And those are qualifications that any teacher worth their salt, who's been in five, 10, 15, 20 years in any classroom can tell you cannot be measured through a traditional test or yeah. exam or homework assignments or sort of, um, structure that, that looks like that. And this is why there are so many, there are so many alternative and progressive schools and, and why mm-hmm. even models that we look at, um, you know, that, that come out of Waldorf and yeah. that come out of, um, sort of, um, some of these other, other models that exist. They're not bad models. Um, but they still will hold to whatever that sort of founders and philosophers ideas. Those models are, Mm -hmm. I remember visiting a progressive school here in town uh, a few years ago, and they were about as open as it could possibly get. Literally kids just sitting around playing video games during school hours. And and, in one way I was like, that's amazing. The kids have complete ownership of their learning and how they're going to do this, you know, and there were some accountability purposes, but it was really very open. Um, and that was great. But when I investigated further and asked them, okay, well, you know, are you willing to even reject the model in which you're following? You know, um, mm. and that and that, um, then they said, no, we basically follow this model, even as open as it is, yeah. we still follow the tenets of that model. Um, that can have benefit and value, but true learning has to to also be reflective enough and humbled enough to say maybe. Maybe that doesn't always work, and if there are things that need to be adjusted or be more constrained or be more organized, that can be the case too. So it's always going to be a fluid motion. um, But I do think there are a lot of ways in which we are so structured, systematically, so big in our educational framework um, that really have very little to do with the actual learning process and socialization process, and are much more determinative on how do we create workers. You know, um, you know. uh, you know, Sir Sir Ken uh, uh, Roberts, Robinson um, just passed away, okay. and he did all the TED Talks uh, back in 2009, 2010, um, and he's, he was an English um, kind of progressive educator, oh. and he really explains out the industrial model really well and why it's so harmful and challenging. And it's just taking the idea of the preconceived notion about um, why it's important to question you know, um, those models of those existing of those models, but you have to be really thoughtful and and connected to that to, to do so. You can't just do it in sort of this passive way because you'll end up nibbling on edges and not really, um, pushing against the, the true nature of that. I'm a big believer of why, Mm -hmm. um, but I'm also a big believer in checking oneself and their own sort of learning and privilege in that regard too. And those, those two things are really need to be done together. Otherwise if you're always only doing the why, in the 21st century, what we end up getting is what we have now, which is a lot of misinformation, right? No longer are we in the information age, we're in the misinformation age, which can be even more dangerous um, if we're just questioning things for the sake of questioning without actually any real reflection about questioning our own ability, um, you know, our own, our own our own knowledge or our own pride in that as well.
0: Absolutely. The questioning plus reflection. Re- reflectioning, <laughs> reflecting. <laughs> um, those are both super important pieces um, in any any sort of learning. Um, and with the social media being the way it is, misinformation just spreads so quickly and comes across your eyeballs so quickly that it's hard to right. slow down and decide to question and like be both critically questioning and. Reflecting um, on who, who is this? What you know? What what is the purpose? All of that.
1: Taking in so much. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you said that you were visiting a progressive school in your community. Um, is is this something you do? Would do you work with schools in your community on their modeling and or?
1: yeah so I mean I guess I've always sort of um, been intrigued on how to be involved in those kind of things right mm-hmm. so it was it was a Sudbury model this is the one I was talking about before and okay. I always you know it's interesting because you know whether it's the hands-on children's Museum or whether it's um, mm-hmm. one of these um, progressive or alternative schools or even these uh, church-based schools or mm-hmm. homeschool cooperatives mm-hmm. I've always tried to you uh, uh, pop in and find connections. Oh, and I, I'm not doing it in a way that um, is sort of intrusive, but I, I'm doing it in a way that's curious. Yeah. And so my 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 state capital has quite a few alternative elements. Um, so I've done that, um, you know, on and off ever since I've gotten out of Goddard, to oh, be honest yeah. with you. And that's been something that has um, continued to uh, help me see a community that is... Um, existing in all corners of education worlds and, and not really only, um, you know, subject to, you know, okay, here's the public and the private, or here's, you know, one type or another. Um, for example, you know, I I worked with charter schools, uh, which might be a little bristling for (laughs) some of uh, (laughs) our our progressive listeners, but what's interesting is, you know, um, it's, it's, I, I tend to find ways, um, to make sure that I am uh, questioning um, what I'm, I'm going to be experiencing with each of those and where, huh, what has seemed to be known or um, unknown about those and, and what is the assumptions and what is the truth. Um, so I, I worked with Boy Scouts of America, an after-school program, and, of course, they have a huge, uh, and I worked with them during, um, huge yeah. sort of political um uh, changes happening within their their uh their their sort of um hiring processes and mm. and some of um working through um but it's interesting because i was and I was working at an after school progressive partnership program on the roots of outdoor education with young boys with boys and girls clubs and you know and um and uh you know after school mm. programs and stuff like that. So I I have a tendency to always find myself And I think this is just the Goddard in me and and the community ed person in me to invoke myself into communities of education that that uh, are trying various sort of models and Mm -hmm. and understandings and working through that. And, you know, the charter school work I did um, was in, you know, the OSPI, which is our, our state government agency. Um, a grant model under federal grant under uh, Betsy DeVos what I am not a fan of oh, um sure. her yeah <laughs> under under her uh Department of Ed okay. and so um it's almost like a uh, there's a interesting chaos theory to it <laughs> I remember um I remember being at, at this conference uh, back in 2013 and just sitting outside and overlooking the Red Rocks in, uh, in Colorado and sitting at a cafe. And someone else from our, our conference was sitting there and he's going, you know, I'm really not the type of educator that comes in and, and scaffolds and builds. I basically just come in and blow up the building and <laughs> you go and bring others into the scaffold and build. And I never thought that was really me. Um, I thought I was more of a structured person. But the further I get down the the the, the line, and mm-hmm. as my wife has my partner has uh, uh, told me, uh, you just can't really keep your mouth shut around some of those things. <laughs> and it's, it's really it's really true. I mean, being humble is good. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that, but I also think, and that's the reflective piece. But I also think um, being being a voice sure. um, is really really important because. Uh, I think the last thing we need to do is is to stop sort of um, just everyone in agreement before the question even occurs. I find that, you know, in um, um, anti-racism, anti-colonialism, when I've had those kind of experiences working in higher ed, working in government agencies, they go around the room having those kind of um conversations the speakers come in and there's a lot of head nodding and agreement without sort of any conversation Mm. and that's that that to me is um a very uh a very not not really critical thinking and and sort of uh approach to how do we actually um get past the place of fear um to a place of actual educational growth in that regard and so um Typically, I, I'm not always well-liked in every community I come in with those, but I hope that sometimes I can help people think. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, I, it, it's probably better to be well-liked sometimes. And those are areas I could soften. Um, but there, there is something to having the individuals who are going to make sure we are actually asking the right, big, important questions um, and not only um, going along to get along. Because uh, to me, that's how you perpetuate oppression. That's how you perpetuate sort of um, privilege. That's how you perpetuate learning that doesn't grow. Um, is just I'm just going to sort of maintain, you know, um, my existence here. It's much harder, you know, mm-hmm. to be a, to be a, a challenge in the face of that. But I say that with a caveat that it's difficult to do that all the time. People need to recover and rest. People need creative outlets. They need to be uh, supported in happiness and support one another in those things. So it's mm-hmm. it's never an all or nothing all the time because that, that will burn you out very quickly, I think.
0: Sure. Um, I'm curious about what your role has been and some of these situations. Like when you are um, – like, like when you – the anti-racism um, or maybe anti-sexism, like, workshops. like the, the, These are things I've heard um, about, like, corporate workshops. Um, people, right. People coming in, just sometimes just lawyers <laughs> coming in and uh, basically for the company covering their ass. <laughs> like, so, <laughs> so what is liable? And, like, just having all that information thrown at you without um and people signing off on a thing saying i learned um but not really actually digging down and so what was your experience in that kind of situation um did did you call out did you question how how did that work
1: yeah so i guess um I guess for me, and I've had that experience both um, in the government agencies. I've had that experience in higher ed worlds, where that's very common okay. to have those kind of um, uh, staff um, sort of retreats and staff required meetings, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had that uh, working in a non educational uh, business, uh-huh. but um, for me, having the experience when I was at undergrad in particular, and working with Goddard also Goddard West and helping to establish education in Seattle, um, the EDU program that was, um, people of color focused, um, program to be established, um, uh, in inner city Seattle and having to help uh, establish that. But also a lot of the seminars and conversations over four years, uh, in political science classes and education, radical education kind of courses, um, sometimes with a diverse community sometimes not as diverse as it needs to be for those voices to be you know having a whole bunch of white people sit around talking about how diverse they are and it creates its own set of unique challenges um but 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 challenging but challenging your own you know understanding your own privilege and that is important um sure. but having people of color there is <laughs> vital to, <laughs> to kind of <laughs> breaking through some of that um so when I so that those kind of areas prepared me to, I, it's important because I don't want to question it in a way that doesn't come off as supportive of those ideas. That's, that's the number one thing, right? Yeah. So we know, we know the facts and the statistics, we know sort of what's happening and understanding what privilege sort of looks like and, and that, but I do want to create the space where education is occurring authentically mm-hmm. and that, that moving past that fear of sort of um, that fear of uh, being uh, kind of uh, reprimanded or being um, penalized or fired or whatever Mm -hmm. for um, ignorance, for uh, opposing ideas or views, um, that that, that that didn't exist. So I would typically frame my interactions in that from a facilitator as an educator standpoint. And what I mean by that is rather than hit to the heart of like, okay, well, what if we have like, you know, some questions around colonialism or white privilege or these kind of things that, that don't match up to what the speaker is saying or, you know, or what, what is kind of agreed upon instead of like hitting at the heart of that, because I don't want it to come as antagonistic or um, anti-supportive of that kind of work because I, I do support it. But I do want to typically frame it like, okay, what strategies can we use here to break beyond sort of the not head nodding? Yeah, we all are sort of in agreement that that this kind of um, is the way in which this privilege has been established or this is how everyone feels or all how people of color feel in this regard or these groups, right. you know. And so I would typically go into those kind of conversations Um Uh, suggesting different models and ideas we could use in those sessions and i would do that during before and after with speakers and and, and chat with them so that was simply my role i never i wouldn't say that i was sort of this prominent speaker in that that's not Mm -hmm. not what we're doing i was just a participant but i would definitely make a voice known to help frame things that open spaces
0: more for the learning Mm. have you ever considered Doing that, <laughs> like being the um, like consultant or something that like comes in to talk about how how to learn <laughs> or how, yeah. to, how to have more authentic learning or like you know s- uh, identifying problems in the system. That
1: yeah. So some of my some of my work, I, I wouldn't say that I'm an expert enough. Um, on those topics to be, to be, um, in that role, that position that would not be even though four years of undergrad and some work of that but that would not be, um, sort of, um, an area that I would be an expertise in. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't. And, and also I think, um, (laughs) I think it's, uh, a a challenging position to talk about privilege in that way as Mm. a person of high prominent privilege, Mm. um, recognizing that's important, but that's not always elevating. It's sort of like, you know, why it's really important to have um, teachers of color in communities of color, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, having the white savior come in to come in to help teach is like terrible, right? That's a bad, mm-hmm. bad model um, in the educational world to do that and was done for decades. Yeah. So, um, but I have, I have um, delved into um, retreat design okay. um, and sort of doing some of that educational design work, um, especially when I worked at a, a Catholic um, uh, university here in town. And so I did about four or five of those that were really super successful and wow. um, uh, over the course of three, five, seven days long, big retreats um, mm-hmm. and really constructing them in a way to get to solutions, but also managing them in a way that was healthy, um, not from this sort of like blanketed corporate um, or a standard kind of basis where we're, we're doing this to get Other things out of it, because oftentimes I've gone to a lot of conferences where, okay, yeah, we can learn a few things here, but this is really because of your partnerships with other organizations that are paying to be here to promote their product or, Ah. you know, for the city you're in and the hotel rates they are getting in the, in the restaurants and that kind of conference culture. Um, I really worked on a smaller scale, more focused on um, holistic retreat design mm-hmm. in small staff communities and ideas where we could have solutions and have them done in a real deep, a profound sense, when I'm mm-hmm. talking eight, nine, 10-hour retreats with built-in kind of community time and and um, interactions and and, and um, meals and just really making it a whole thematic sort of process mm-hmm. and feeling to that. And, and that is one of the areas that that I really feel naturally inclined to, to doing. So future work in that area is really intriguing to me and, and part of naturally who I am and why I've been studying holistic education and building upon that, um, that idea for, for quite a few years now.
0: I love that. I, I think that's, um, something you would excel at. <laughs> and, um, it reminds me a lot because you, you when you said meals and, Eight to ten hours. It reminded me of a day at Goddard residency, right? <laughs> right? Like yeah. where you're kind of just having these conversations. Some some of the best learning and some of the best um, when I when I first wrote my reflection, like my residency reflection after my very first residency, uh, some of my best learning was in those spaces that were not workshops so that we're just, um, having conversations on a walk or at a meal. Right. And yeah. Uh, did you have that experience as well at Goddard? That you-
1: Absol- absolutely. I mean, that's sort of, um, the essence of how Goddard is so beautiful and it's, it's approach, right? Because, um, that space, space and time, um, is really important to, honor and respect and learning in ways that are um more valued than how we think about them you know because when i talk about boundlessness right when we we started to talk about that or or breaking down those walls um it's the idea that 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 learning doesn't have to be confined to the church it doesn't be confined to your book club library it doesn't be confined to to your schooling environment it can be anywhere. It can be on the walk, it can be over bread, it can be over, um, whatever is sort of the natural, yeah, the sort of internal, um, cosmic sort of approach to who we are as human beings, um, in one sense. And then another sense is like, you know, um, that communication with one another is a huge draw to that. So, um, it's interesting because As horrible as some of this virtual learning has been during COVID, there have been ways in which it has helped us think about how learning has to exist even from distance and space. And um, one of the things that intrigued me most about Goddard was that, okay, yeah, you're not on the residency full time, but... You come in for this sort of almost like, <laughs> you know, camp, you know, for yeah. nine, ten days. And you have this really intense experience with all these people. And then you leave. Mm-hmm. And then six months later, you go out into the world, into Goddard and the, and the things you are doing and the lives that you have. And then you're studying and communicating and working in that. And then you come back. And I always described it as a heartbeat. You know, Goddard was like a heartbeat in that regard. You know, it's just like. We leave and we come. it's the inhale and the exhale Ooh. of the learning. And um, you see that when you're at Goddard and sort of those in-between moments um, when you're walking in the woods. Um, I remember walking with a, a colleague in the, the dead of winter and um, it had just been so much going on and it was so back and forth and mm-hmm. so many you know meetings and, and so many workshops and so many, you know, they have to get this done, the study plan, blah, blah, blah. And then I remember just um, sitting with her there in the snow if you've ever been in snow for a long time with not a lot of people, it's the quietest um, you can imagine, um, and you can't hear a sound. And I'm in the Vermont uh, woods and the snow, and there we are, and it was so peaceful and so quiet, and the clarity of that, and that hour long walk where we barely even spoke, it just rejuvenated me and brought me back to a sense of okay, I'm refreshed, I'm renewed. That purpose and that, so that, that space, that time, that recharge, right. That allowed for that reflection. And then to that go again, um, you know, one of the best things about work life balance, um, conversation that's happened in the last 10, 15 years is that exact idea. Now, how many times do people actually live that, that in a way that makes sense? Um, holistically is, is, uh, I think a challenge, you know, how to slow down. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's how I found Goddard to be. Um, and it's just valuing valuing time and space in a way that around learning and around each other that we don't think about intuitively enough, you know?
0: Absolutely. I think the idea of work-life balance and um, it gets made fun of a lot for, for good reasons. I mean, like, because it, it can kind of sound – weird sometimes (laughs) like like people um uh, use it as an excuse to not work sometimes Mm. um and i don't know i'm in i'm in new york so people have like this burnout mentality (laughs) which is not (laughs) healthy Uh, i have never been that way like here I, I, i i well i don't know um i am less like that than some of my peers in new york mm. um but i think it's very important and something that I, I think a lot of us are reckoning with in the pandemic um because our work is primarily well, for most of us it takes place in front of a computer mm. and then but then our our leisure is also in front of, like you know in front of a computer and or on on your phone or whatever and so right. I think people are having a really hard time right now like with it in the pandemic I mean obviously there's the, the all of the worry about illness too you know like right. um, and so I've been seeing I don't know maybe it's the algorithms but like for me it's like I, I just keep seeing people posting, be kind to yourself, be good to yourself. <laughs> and maybe it's just what I need to hear like for like Absolutely. when I don't get stuff done um I think it's like you said, and like with with your Goddard experience that's of uh, the, the idea of of walking in that and having that silence right. refresh you um, and make you more. Productive, or whatever you want to call it, um, I'm just ready to tackle the harder, mm. the hard work. You know, like it's all inclusive, and that is something that I really appreciated about my Goddard experience. Um, the whole holistic—that's what you were saying earlier. Yeah, um, yeah, I think mean, that's very cool.
1: Yeah, there's just the the qualitative purpose of that. The holistic element is. Absolutely necessary. Now, within that, you have to have the reflection of yourself to make sure you're not just, mm-hmm. quote unquote, being lazy, right? Because don't get me wrong. I mean, there, there's a difference between being intentional mm-hmm. in recovery, mm-hmm. right? And rejuvenation, right? And, and being kind to yourself and making sure that you are taking care of yourself. Absolutely health, yeah. restore. right. Recovery. Those are just really important things that sound like these sort of, you know, Oh, these, you know, kind of, you know, flowery words, Mm -hmm. but when you actually use them in an intentional sense, Mm -hmm. they're super important and they're super healthy and super, they're super, um, collaborative and connected to your actual work that whatever you're trying to accomplish, because if you don't create that kind of balance, um, You will have burnout material you will burn out, or you'll also be sort of thinking you're doing things that are, you know, uh, that are balanced like for life, you know, Mm. when actually it's just more work, it's more busy work (laughs) that is not really, uh, you know, I, I found that when I visited my, my wife, when we were, we were dating, um, I love Toronto, amazing Uh city, wonderful. But as a West Coast kid, Northwest kid, mm-hmm. I found the um time we weren't during the work week. Um when we were, <laughs> and you know, I know New York has got to be this like on you know steroids, but um mm-hmm. I found um the idea of downtime didn't really exist in that kind of city culture. And mm-hmm. to that kind of degree, it was just like, okay, yeah, now I'm not working for money, but basically what am I doing that's going to be, you know, working for life? You know, I've got you know, 12 things on my to-do list today and they all have to be done. And I just go, that is not taking time to recover. And that is not taking time to restore. And that slowing down of that process is really, really important. And, you know, I'm also a product of my hippie mom and dad. So I don't know if that's part of it as well. Um, But it certainly seems as though when I went to Goddard, I found myself both productively busy, um, energetically like, just filled and yet also found time to breathe and meditate and slow down and all of those kind of combination of things seem like the healthiest and a holistic approach to how we learn and how we grow and how we sort of can be the best person of ourselves that we can be you know so it's sort of like okay I'm going to do yoga today all right what time is my yoga can I get my coffee before my yoga okay after my yoga I got to go stop at target you yeah. know you know what I'm saying so there's a different approach to actually being intentional about it And then just um, thinking you're being balanced when really you're just filling more of the same cup. Mm -hmm.
0: Your hippie mom and dad. um, (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Did they have any influence on you going to Evergreen and then Goddard or, and your progressive education interest? uh, how, How did that?
1: Yeah. So my, um, my mom was just very supportive of me going to Australia on a one-way mm-hmm. ticket. And she was very cool about stuff and just, yeah, just go, you know, she's a real strong person of faith and she just, just let God and let go. She just, just go, you know, there's a, no real, uh, real thoughtfulness behind it, but a lot of support. So that's great. But, um, my dad as a, uh, what he called himself a weekend hippie, but I think he was a little more than that <laughs> in his twenties. Um, he, uh, he, you know, I, I was much more, um, conventional and conservative growing up, I was not, you know, like him and that kind of freewheeling and we'll see what happens and whatever. I want to be in music and basically, and that kind of thing. But as I got a little bit older in my twenties, I started to be able to find ways that were going to be, um, uh, valued, um, by him, but more importantly, that I found him to be right in a lot of those kind of areas. And so, uh, his process of may not have been monetarily super successful, but in terms of living his life, how he wanted to live it and also contribute to others, mm-hmm. um, really happy and living a life that was full of purpose and and sort of um, dignity and kindness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we're nothing alike. Him and I are nothing alike. I'm just like my mom. But the <laughs> thing is, is that those kind of things which he lived that way did rub off on of me and um, helped me make decisions that, uh, I traditionally would have made about evergreen and goddard um because i saw the value in, in thinking differently about mm-hmm. um a lot of different things and it really opened me up to not only be stuck in my bubble uh stuck in my privilege stuck in my sort of window and eye and that kind of thing and really having to face you know how can i be an ally rather than you know someone who is going to maintain or sustain that kind of um privilege and and that kind of power dynamic. So those those things were over time it, it just uh, you made sure to have me question and think about things in a real spiritual but also in a real open and calm and balanced way right not not sort of saying just do the sort of um, traditional thing that everybody else does do what makes you happy and figure out how to get to that place where you're going to be happy in that regard
0: definitely in our last few minutes here um do you do you have any advice I I mean you you can talk about whatever you want but um I I am curious um because you have these very strong ideas and um abilities you know for questioning and reflecting um And I feel like that's very important right now with both of the, you know, with the misinformation and um, just in general, like when we're questioning, you know, you're, you were talking about systems and this is like a year that, um, of reckoning, (laughs) racial, um, systemic racism. um, And we're, you know, the last couple of years with like Me Too, and we're really looking, I mean, not not everybody, but like I <laughs> I will say for me, I have definitely been trying to figure out and my brain has kind of opened to this idea of, um, questioning the systems uh, that, that have allowed these things to perpetuate. And mm-hmm. so do you have any advice for our listeners on how to examine something that you see out in the world? Um you know, how, how to engage with it. And, uh, you know, if, if it's a, if it's a system, if it's an article, if it, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, But how, like what kinds of things go through your brain when you are um, engaging in the process of questioning and reflecting?
1: Yeah. So I think that's a great question. Thank you so much, Amanda. I'd love to give a little bit of just um, ending advice here. Um, I think, What's really important first is to have some clarity with yourself and get yourself into a place, a headspace first that you're very clear on for yourself. And that might come off a little selfish at first. Like, how can we wait? What are you talking about? What do you mean? You know, I want to see these things in the world and and these systematic elements and how to break through those structures and what what, what can I do? And the reality is they're very large, and they're very big, and they're hard, and they take years, if not a whole life, to kind of um, make progress on, uh, whether that's in education or in sexism or whether you know it's in racial equality. These are not small things. These are very large things, and they all need to be tackled. And the progress in, in things like 2020 allow for some of those things to be uh, shined focus on, um, but it's still going to take many, many, many years to continue to make progress, even as we continue to make it. Um, My advice is first, you can't serve from an empty vessel. Um, I know that's a very classic saying, but I really believe in it. And so it's, it sounds like, you know, from a place of reality, we need to make sure that there are certain things that we are constrained by, and that's our economic value and how we can survive, right? For our our Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So that, that needs to first exist, right? We need to make sure that we can sustain ourselves. And sometimes that takes up a large portion of what we can do in the rest of the existence. Once that economic sustainability is there for ourselves, which is a heavy lift, don't get me wrong. But once that can kind of exist, And we can find a way to begin to flush out our own sort of thoughts without the swirling misinformation, Mm -hmm. without the swirling sort of um, the social media sort of attack. And without that kind of I mean, I'm not saying you can't engage in that stuff. I'm just saying, make sure you recognize uh, the portal and the hole and the, and the segment in the area, of the corner in which that exists in. Yep. And then that's not reality for you. That's just, you know, the tool that is being used. Um, once we can get to a place of sort of um, peace with ourselves, then we can begin to have allied ships and partnerships and to dive into that world. Now, sometimes that can occur simultaneously and sometimes jumping into that can help us. But I will say, without first working through ourselves and knowing ourselves first, and then also having that reflective process. Now, we can't continually only have that reflective process because that cycle never really ends. So yeah. it has to, at some point, we have to sort of make that leap and adjustment to to then tackling and taking on these sort of causes. Um, but I do think we need to get to a certain level, each of us, where we can then feel like we can be ready to engage in that when we're not serving from an empty vessel. Um, And then when we do begin to feel empty in that vessel, go back and then, you know, restore ourselves and and to take that approach again to be, you know, back within ourselves. But once that occurs, then we can begin to um, interact and work. And as I have done, and I recommend um, others to do, taking on everything is really not – Possible. It's really too hard and too big for everything, and so my my area of that has been always education as as seeing that as such a value of how things can be moved and also destructed. Right? I mean, how colonialism can be, uh, you know, <laughs> created in the and, and education as a primary tool for that, so it can be you know have its positives or destructive negatives. Mm-hmm. Um, but as seeing that as as a powerful source and then working locally. So always thinking globally around those things and then working uh, collectively in a local sort of sense and then contributing where you can while always staying true to yourself in that sort of uh, reflection and sort of um, work in that regard. I think that's the best order of operations I can kind of think about Mm -hmm. in terms of getting to individuals where a place where they can be successful and also um, where they can live with dignity in that regard and uh, be kind and humble and not feel as though their conscience is being wrecked over that Mm. you know i never i never went to evergreen and goddard to come out to have a great job i never thought about that i went to those schools because i love learning and exploration. I want to better myself as a human being. And I think if we start from a place like that about learning and growing as a community and service, hopefully the jobs will, will sustain us and, and work us. So we can, that's great. If we can use that for innovation, a business, whatever. But um, I think uh, the most important thing is, it's being happy. <laughs> I really do. And if, if we don't, if we don't start with that first, we can't really um, then begin to, be actively engaged, but you have to be intentional because it's very easy to fall into a trap where you're not, you're not actively engaged. So, um, you don't have to hate the world, um, to be out in it and learn it and use Goddard and, and around it, but you do need to be, um, okay with who you are and then know your timing and space in which to engage and, and who to work with locally to, to make those changes.
0: Very well said. Thank you so much, Casey. This was a wonderful conversation, and we have so many other things that we could talk about, but you and I will be talking for a long time, so I'm not that worried about it. We will be able to cover more stuff. Great. Thank you so much, and have a wonderful afternoon.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Amanda. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our episode with Casey Corona. For more information, check out the show notes.
0: To find out more about what's going on with the Alumni Council, please visit Goddardalumni.com and sign up for our free profile.
1: Also, check out the current projects we're working on, like Study Plan, where we meet together once a week to go over what we've been working on throughout the year as Goddard alumni. Thanks for checking out Goddard alumni and Goddard in the World podcast. This podcast is a project of Goddard Alumni Council.
0: It is produced and hosted by Casey Corona and Amanda Faye Laxon. It is edited by Amanda Faye Laxon.
1: If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast or would like more information, please visit goddardalumni.com slash podcast.
0: Please subscribe to the podcast in your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. See you next time.